Hello, welcome to the Water Pain Podcast. My name is Conrad Jacobs. And I'm Glenn Williams. How are you, Glenn? Yeah, very good today. Very excited today as well, because we're interviewing my colleague, Dr. Jane McNicholas, obviously a colleague and a friend, known for a long time. But we're also going to talk with her about complex mental health that we see in chronic pain clinics, which I think is uh, something we all see a lot of. But it's also something that's increasing in our clinics with time. And it's part of this increased complexity that we talk a lot about. Yeah, I'm very excited about that too, definitely. But it's also reminded me of something quite painful that's happened to me, I'm afraid. Glenn, has anything ever happened to you that's made you so embarrassed that every time you think about it, you get a little pang, almost a physical feeling of embarrassment? On a daily basis. <laughs> On a daily basis. <laughs> and uh, I'm probably not going to go any further than that, Conrad. <laughs> oh, I, 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 let's talk about this later in the pub, Glenn. I'm very curious to find out more. But do you know what? Something happened to me last year, in fact. And every time I think about it, I still feel a bit embarrassed. And I haven't talked about it much, but I'm going to talk to you about it today. Okay. I'm maybe not the best therapist you could look at, but (laughs) far away. In March 2022, I was going to do a symposium for the ISPP conference in New Zealand. And it was going to be on mental health. And I did it with three different collaborators, two from the US and one from Australia. And the title of the symposium was The Who, What, When and How of Addressing Mental Health Issues, Complicating Treatment of Pediatric Chronic Pain. So very relevant to today's topic, of course. And the conference was completely online. And it was going to be at one o'clock New Zealand time on Saturday. So I was very confident that I knew exactly what time that would be in the UK. And I was absolutely certain that was going to be Saturday night at one o'clock. However, when I woke up on Saturday morning, I woke up to lots of WhatsApp messages. Conrad, are you online? Conrad, where are you? Conrad, we're in the waiting area. Conrad, sorry not to see you. It was a very good symposium. I missed it completely. What an utter idiot. Uh, Yes. (laughs) <laughs> short answer to that, but I, I suspect you're not alone, and I know you're not alone because I can tell you that I once missed a flight for exactly that reason. I turned up to the flight 24 hours late. Ah, okay. So now we've shared this, yes. these moments of embarrassment. Let's quickly, quickly move on to other topics. I know you've got something you want to bring to us this week, Conrad. I do. The ISBP conference in Halifax seems quite a long time ago now, of course. It was the end of September, beginning of October. But I still wanted to talk about one particular symposium that I went to because it was very interesting. And it was about the use of virtual reality for chronic pain. And there's now lots of evidence for the use of virtual reality in acutely painful and distressing situations. For example, blood tests, of course, or dental procedures or colonoscopies. But really, the question is always kind of how can virtual reality be helpful in chronic pain? It will be difficult for patients to walk around with a VR headset all day. But there's now a group of clinicians and researchers, mainly US-based, who have started thinking about this. And Deirdre Logan from Boston presented about the Innovate Consortium. And Innovate stands for Interdisciplinary Network on Virtual and Augmented Technologies for Pain Management. And this is from the website, aims to advance the field of VR for pediatric chronic pain rehabilitation by providing guidance for best practices in the design, evaluation, and dissemination of VR-based interventions targeting this population. And one of the fascinating ideas and things that she presented about was the VReal school tool, a simulation of school. Patients are faced virtually with some of the issues they experience at school, 
and their responses are monitored and coping strategies are suggested to them. And for me, this is really exciting stuff and potentially very, very helpful. But the big challenge for me is ensuring that progress made in virtual reality is also made and maintained in the real world, of course. That's where it all needs to happen. So it can be a helpful tool, but only insofar as it can help them to deal with pain and chronic pain in the real world. What we've often observed is, for example, a patient who uses crutches, when they use either virtual reality or they use the Nintendo Wii, very often they're able to wait there when they're playing. However, when they stop playing, they can no longer wait there and they have to use their crutches. And what we've learned in our service is that progress often requires conscious action. You need to grapple with the problem. You need to grapple with pain. Look pain straight in the eyes and do what you want to do rather than what pain wants to do. And my worry is a little bit that VR can be used almost as a distraction technique and that you don't learn to consciously grapple with pain. So that's one of the questions that I have at this stage, but I'd like to be proven wrong. And maybe we can do a podcast about virtual reality interventions at some stage. Absolutely. I, I think it's a really exciting field. We need to embrace all the technology that is coming along. And I think there'll be found to be good things and bad things about that technology, but there'll be certainly things that in our treatment of paediatric pain that we can use, use it. I sort of agree with what you're saying there, that using it to put somebody into real life situations and see how they cope with it and being able to appraise that and then maybe do it again and think about doing it a different way and again and again and move on seems to be a very sensible way to use it and probably has more long-term use than the distraction type things. But equally, this idea that a lot of people are putting forward where they use virtual reality to help mobility and movement, yes, you know, they need to be able to do it without the headset on. And yes, just playing it in the game, you will get those patients who say, well, I can do it there, but I can't do it outside of the virtual reality. But actually, I still think there will be a use there because it will show patients they can, and some of them will take that on board and take it forward. But equally, if you can use it in a more rehabilitative way, use it frequently, and so that aids somebody to do their exercises and do their mobility, I imagine for a certain group, again, it will be slowly transferred into their out of the virtual reality. So I can see lots and lots of ways it could be used. And the research I think is going to be very exciting. And I absolutely agree, a podcast for the future. So should we go in and meet Jane? That will be good. I'm delighted to be able to welcome my colleague, Dr. Jane McNicholas, who is the lead psychologist for our service here this afternoon. And in fact, Jane and I haven't just met up. We've been in clinic all afternoon. So although I'm saying hello, it's great to see you. Thanks, Glenn. Lovely to be here. Really glad to be part of the podcast. So as usual, Jane, we're going to start with some questions so we can help everyone know a little bit about you. So I'd just like to ask, what's your favorite place on earth? My favorite place on earth? It's actually a fairly easy one because it hasn't really changed from from my childhood. And I'm from County Mayo in Ireland, but my favourite place is in County Sligo. And it is the estuary of the River Moy on Enniscrone Beach. So I think what I love about it is that it never changes. Uh, so you, you do this walk, it takes quite a while. You're usually facing into very strong wind, but then you get to the end and you have this amazing estuary running into the Atlantic Ocean. 
but it's just one of those places that every time you go back, it kind of evokes the same feeling and it's very calming. Let's go to the next question. What's your favorite film and why? I think I go through different phases. I most definitely cannot commit to a favorite film, but I think I've been influenced by the recency effect, thinking about a film I, I saw quite recently, and it was significant in that I was able to watch it in one sitting, which is uh, quite unusual for me at the moment. But it's a film called Boiling Point. It's a British film, and it's a 90-minute film about the drama that unfolds in a high-end restaurant kitchen over the course of a service. But it's one of those films where the, there's just this very slow build of tension throughout. And for anyone who's worked in a kitchen or really for anyone who's eaten in a restaurant, it's a, an absolute brilliant, brilliant watch. Jane, something that irritates you. This one's really easy. This one is really easy. And it's, I don't know if this is unique to London, but one thing that irritates me every single day are those electric bikes that people can just leave anywhere uh, once they finish with them. I've seen them parked across bike lanes in London. I've seen them abandoned on footpaths. I've seen them abandoned in the middle of roads. And it feels like it's a sport for those bike users to just abandon them anywhere. But that is one of those things that every day just winds me up. So how did you get involved in pain? You're clearly working the pain management service at Great Ormond Street right now. Is that where you started working in pain as well? Yes. So I started working in pain at Great Ormond Street. And my journey here is, I guess I moved through lots of different areas. And there was a point in my career where I used to wonder if I was a bit of a jack of all trades, but actually I think reflecting on it over time, I've realized that it's things like complexity and working with systems that has always appealed to me. And that is actually the journey that my career has been on. I started out my career actually working in addictions and that kind of evolved into working closely with families and then working with looked after children. And then when I first came to Great Ormond Street, I was working on the Mildred Creek unit, which is our mental health inpatient ward. And actually during that time, I had quite a bit of overlap with the pain team and so many of our presentations had an element of pain in them. And then this opportunity arose to come and work with the pain team. And it's something that I've done for about six or seven years now, I think. But it's just all made sense in terms of that umbrella of complex presentations and that kind of systemic element to it of thinking about how pain can come along and, you know, nest into a, an entire family system and the impact that it can have on everyone in that system. And then thinking, obviously, about the role of psychology and all of that. One final question. Have you got a, an article or a book about pain that you could recommend? I think I'm going to go with a book, which is um, A Liberated Mind by Steve Hayes. Steve Hayes' account of how he developed acceptance and commitment therapy, which of course is a mainstay in, in psychological treatment of chronic pain. And I think what I really like about it and about ACT in general is that kind of personal element to it, That, but it's a therapy that came about from Hayes' own experience of panic disorder. And that recognition that there are some experiences that we have in life that we can't box off and that we can't run away from. And I think that's how it has evolved really nicely into a, a treatment for pain in that our understanding of pain as professionals and is that we can't 
run away from it. We can't switch it off. We can't ignore it. And we actually have to find a space for it in our lives. So the book starts out with that journey and then it goes on really to describe the process of ACT. But Steve Hayes has a way of writing that is very personal and it's not too academic and it's not too difficult to read in the way some of these more academic books can be. That's really interesting what you've just said about Steve Hayes. And, and he is, of course, a very big name in Child and Adolescent Act Therapy. But before we dive in with our questions around the relationship between pain and mental health, could you tell us a little bit more about which mental health diagnoses you commonly see in pain clinics? Yes, anxiety is present in almost every presentation that we see. And I feel like it can be there in a very normal way in that for anyone who's experiencing pain, it kind of goes hand in hand that you've got this danger message in your body. And that will obviously spark off your other danger area, which is anxiety to let you know that there's something going wrong. I think we can see it in two different ways. We can see people who have a very understandable concern about what their pain is and what it's doing to them. And that will evoke thoughts such as, is this ever going to go away? And what happens if I'm you know, in pain for the rest of my life? That kind of thing. And then we also see it in another way where we see young people who are presenting with probable diagnoses of social anxiety or even specific phobias. So I think that whole cluster of anxious presentations often present in a pain clinic. Any other mental health diagnoses that you commonly come across in clinic? We see lots of young people who have, again, low mood as in response to their experience of chronic pain, but also we will see people who have meet the criteria for a mood disorder and whose experience of low mood might predate what they're presenting to us with. We will see other presentations, but those two are probably the, the main ones we see. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. They're the most frequent ones. And other ones that we see sometimes are mild versions of post-traumatic stress disorder, or sometimes termed PTSS now, post-traumatic stress symptoms rather than a disorder. And that, that's quite common in patients we see as well, often actually in relation to pain. So they had a very painful event that they can still remember very, very vividly. And that's had a huge impact. Yeah, I would agree. And I think the implications that that has for treatment are huge. Just trying to be able to get people to the point where they can start to engage with some of the things that we need them to be able to do. Um, so if you think about starting from that point where you have somebody with post-traumatic stress and then needing them to start doing very difficult physiotherapy or learning to function despite their pain without really addressing that elephant in the room, then it can make things incredibly complex very quickly. Do you think there's more mental health presentations such as this in the general population at the moment in children and we're just seeing that reflected in the patients we see in our clinic? I think you summarise that really well because I think that is possibly where we're at. There's wonderful studies that show that, that we are seeing increased levels of anxiety and depression in young people. So that's likely to map onto our chronic pain population too. So I don't think it's a specific thing for chronic pain. I think it's a reflection of what's happening for our young people globally. I think if I talk to my colleagues in other fields, psychologists who work in diabetes or cystic fibrosis or any other specialisms, then they would often say that they feel that the complexity of their patients has increased as well. 
What do you think is the link between mental health and pain or between pain and mental health? I think that's a wonderful question. And I think it's a question that we have to answer as pain psychologists. It's a question that we have to think about and we have to answer all the time. I think we need to use formulation and we need to really assess and understand how these two things interplay together. I don't think we can look at a referral letter. I don't think we can just eyeball a patient in clinic. And unfortunately, I think with general busyness in clinics, that skill can get a little bit diluted or a little bit lost. But I think it is absolutely crucial. And for the patient journey, I think it can make the world of difference in terms of their experience and their understanding of their own mental health and their own pain is to have it explained to them by way of a formulation, particularly a collaborative formulation. But perhaps you may have individuals who have a predisposition to perhaps anxiety whose experience of chronic pain was then impacted by that. And equally, if you are working with a family where there is a a huge history of chronic pain, where there's a huge history of health anxiety, those kind of things, then you need to understand everything in the context of those dynamics. It's not an easy question to answer that kind of, is this causal or is this an association? I think we need to do the service to our patients and really sit down and do the assessments that we're very, very well trained to do. And you said that you feel that there's a two-way relationship between mental health and pain. Pain makes mental health worse. Mental health can make pain worse. Can you tell us a little bit more about the second part of that, about how does anxiety any other negative feelings? How can they make pain worse? I think, you know, what we know is that when we have patients who are continually sitting with worrying negative thoughts about their pain, about what their pain might do, about what the pain is going to stop them from doing, they end up in a position of avoidance because the easiest thing to do is is not to gamble, so not to take a chance and actually just to withdraw a little bit to avoid and, and actually withdrawing and avoiding and pulling back from the things that give us enjoyment because of a fear of pain is actually going to exacerbate our anxiety and ultimately create this very, very difficult cycle where we end up solely focusing on the pain because we've kind of removed all else. And, you know, to think about very simply, our attention only needs to go to the pain then. We've nothing else to think about or to focus on. In addition, with that avoidance, we're getting no positive feedback from the world. So that fear that we had about pain and that fear that we then kind of generalize to the outside world, that becomes reinforced if we're, if we're really getting no good feedback from friends, from family, from experiences, from the things that we do on a day-to-day basis. And so it's really, really easy to get completely trapped in this negative cycle where anxiety feeds pain, feeds anxiety, feeds pain. And it's not just anxiety. I'm using that as shorthand, but it can be, like you said, Conrad, any of those kind of negative thoughts, negative experiences. And I think it can happen really, really quickly too. I think what I would add is the added complexity with pain is that before our patients understand what chronic pain is and how it differs from acute pain, their response, that kind of avoidant response, you know, the the avoidant response might be resting up or taking a few days off school. And that is viewed as being completely normal and, and that's encouraged. So, you know, I think that adds a little layer that, you know, in the beginning, so many of our patients 
really believes that they're doing the right thing by protecting themselves, by withdrawing, by avoiding, and then you've started that cycle. I think you described that just exactly how difficult it is. But once you've got that formulation in place, how do you then, or what are your tricks really for discussing that with the family and trying to help them all see it from what will be a perspective that then they probably haven't thought about before? The absolute key there is to start where the family are at. You may have families who've gotten themselves into quite a model with the pain presentation, you know, in terms of functioning, in terms of the family organizing themselves around the pain, organizing themselves around the specific demands of the pain and how the patient functions. So to answer your question, you need to start where they're at and you need to ensure that they get no sense of blame from what's been described or what's been discussed. So the way that I would do it is to to validate what they have done, that as a family or an individual, they fully believed that the journey they were on was the correct one. And, you know, you can almost help them understand that it is the correct one, perhaps for a different type of pain. But when we're dealing with chronic pain, it's almost like we're asking you to do something quite counterintuitive by learning to function despite the pain. And then, you know, we start to think with them about what they might like to see different. So what might be the most important thing for them, for that individual or for parents or for whoever, but it needs to come from them. It's about a collaborative conversation and looking at what they've tried and trying to get a sense of what's worked. Because I guess What we know is that for lots of people, they will continue to try something even if it has stopped being effective or even if it was never effective. And, you know, and the obvious example there is staying off school because of pain. I have yet to meet anyone for whom that was curative. It didn't get them where they wanted to get to. But I think people often forget to stop, to think about that and ask themselves, is this doing anything? Is this getting us anywhere? When you're in a busy clinic and you're seeing patients with the multidisciplinary team, how do you kind of know that you're faced with somebody with potentially moderate or severe mental health issues? And how do you go about assessing that? I mean, it's always difficult to do the level of assessment you need in a clinic. And actually, it's impossible to do the level of assessment you need to do in a clinic. So I think, yeah, what you're asking is how do you get the key bits of information that you need and how do you spot when you might need to be asking more questions. For me, it is generally about functioning and particularly trying to get a sense, we can't know this, but trying to get a sense of whether the level of functioning that you're seeing more or less maps on to what's been described in terms of the pain experience. And when you have quite a big mismatch between those things, for me, that's the moment where I would want to be asking a few more questions how we'd normally do it is there are, you know, some basic screening questions that we'll ask in clinic. And then there are some people for whom we might need to ask a few more questions really to get a sense of how they have been experiencing their pain. And crucially, because it's, you know, children and young people, how the family and those around them have been responding to their pain. So, and then there are times where we also need to consider risk. But when I talk about risk, obviously, I mean risk of deliberate self-harm or suicidal risk. But there are occasions where that will come up, where you'll recognize pretty quickly that somebody is painting a picture of very low mood and very poor functioning. And you can almost see that they're at the point where they're running out of options for themselves. And that's a difficult thing to ask about in clinic. 
The other thing that we do is when we have young people and families where we immediately recognize that this is complex, there's more going on here and there's, there seems to be quite a significant mental health problem here. We will try and get them in for a complex pathway. Our complex pathway is a more in-depth mental health assessment, usually involving a couple of psychologists and will you know, last a couple of hours. But where we see this um, marked need, we'll do a standalone assessment within a week or two weeks of seeing them in our clinic. That can be helpful. That's been a good innovation that we took on here in the last couple of years. Jane, these patients you've described, you know, on the complex pathway can have really quite severe mental health problems we've come across with time. And that does seem really quite prohibitive to a lot of pain management work and pain management strategies. So how do you think we should approach the management of those patients and also thinking about how you time pain management? Yeah, I think with that, timing is a really key thing. I think these complex patients where there's often another mental health problem presenting, it could be a trauma, it could be something like OCD. So, you know, you could be seeing something completely unrelated to the pain, but you need to figure out with the family and through your formulation, what is the priority here and what is having the biggest impact. I often think with young people that We're dealing with them at such a crucial point in their development. They are so busy in terms of obviously their education, their academics, but also their social development and just figuring out who they are, figuring out what they're all about. And I feel like we're against the clock to try and get these young people back to good functioning. That's incredibly long-winded, but I guess what I'm thinking about is the functioning, what is having the biggest impact here. And so perhaps you use OCD as an example. You might end up assessing somebody on our complex pathway and figure out, oh yeah, they've got good going OCD. However, if you figure out that the OCD itself, they've kind of got it under control. It does need treatment, but what's really, really stopping them getting to school, seeing their friends, living a normal life is their experience of chronic pain. Then it's a yardstick, but that's kind of how I start that conversation of thinking about what's the most important thing here and what should we be prioritizing? How do you work out So whether, even if they've got their whatever mental health presentation, it might be under a certain amount of control, but whether they're still in the right place to be able to engage with pain management. You know, it can be about a combination of things, just sidestepping a little bit from mental health per se. But with any of our patients, you need to have a good understanding of their readiness for change. We have in our clinic everything that they might need to support them on their pain management journey. But, you know, it is like you can take a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. You need to be able to have conversations with the patient about readiness for change. And there are some really good techniques that we can use to assess that. We can throw physio at them, we can throw psychology at them, we can give them the medications, we can give them the pain education. But if it's not the right time for them, then it is It's an absolute waste of resources for one thing. So I think that's where you need to start with everything. Are they ready for this? Um, Is this important to them? And is this going to be prioritized um, with them? And for me, I think my background in working with addictions helps in this regard because I can use a lot of um, motivational interviewing techniques to really get a sense of where people are at and is this the right time for them. Do you mind if I describe a kind of fairly typical patient to you? So this is 
a 14-year-old girl with chronic pain who has gone to school and sits in class and she is really, really anxious about what other people think of her and how they judge her. And she can feel that her pain is getting worse and worse and she's starting to panic. And she can really feel that pure flight response. And she just wants to go. She just wants to leave. And then the next day she says, do you know what? I don't want to go back into that classroom. What would you treat there? Would you treat the panic? Would you treat the pain? My initial instinct is you treat the panic. And then I kind of pull back to think, but you can treat the panic and you can help them to kind of understand the pain in a similar way way to kind of see that link that, you know, the treatment for the panic would be to develop the skills and strategies to sit with the discomfort, to sit with the, with the distress caused by those thoughts that she's been having and to recognize that, that she can take control over that and that she can realize that what she thought might happen, that kind of catastrophic outcome that she's probably predicting is highly unlikely to come true. And in a way, I think there's something about the pain that 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 idea of trying to run away or trying to escape from the pain, that doesn't work either, that we need to find a way to allow the pain to be in our life to a tolerable degree and to gradually learn to increase our functioning around that. In answer, I would I would be treating the panic, but I think I'd always be holding in mind how can we use this to help her to to recognize how her pain is responding to. And with that, you can really give young people that sense of ownership over it. And that can be such an important part of working with young people with chronic pain. You know, they start off the journey similarly with panic. You start off the journey thinking, I can't control this. This is something that happens to me. This is something that takes over and then I have to escape and I have to, you know, in the case of pain, I have to go and lie down. Or in the case of panic, I have to get out of that classroom. And actually by gradually helping people to giving people strategies and giving people cognitive skills to realize that they can sit with it increasingly, they begin to feel more in control and to have a bit a sense of ownership over everything that distresses them. I don't know if you would agree with that, Conrad. Definitely. And so to stay within an act, you know, acceptance and commitment type metaphor, kind of you have two rain clouds that are on the horizon and that are coming closer and closer. First one is pain, second one is panic, and they're coming closer and closer, and you're getting wetter and wetter. And you just have to learn to sit with the wetness, as it were. And that's in a way what you're saying, I guess, kind of, and, and that's by simply sitting with it and being with it and not panicking about panicking and not feeling sad, upset, etc., about being in pain. You, in the long term, master it. Yeah, it is, it is what I'm saying. It is what I'm saying. And I think that act metaphor is, is a wonderful one. We use a, a slight variation on that in our pain education session, which is walking in the rain, which is much the same. But, you know, you can walk in the rain feeling disgruntled and feeling upset and feeling angry and all of those things. Or you can walk in the rain kind of Gene Kelly style and just decide that this is what it is and there's nothing I can do to change it right now. And, and I think that's a really powerful one. And you can sing. Yeah. Do you sing in the pain education class? I should. I'm singing I think we've already discussed the fact that that's the bit of Welsh genes I didn't inherit would be the singing one. I think all the patients would run and never come back again. So we're not going to hear your beautiful, dulcet, baritone voice. Not on this podcast. Not if we want to keep our <laughs> listeners. No. Jane, 
one of the issues that if we take it back a little bit from the treatment is around where these children should be managed from their mental health intervention perspective. I don't know what your feelings around this. I mean, in some ways, as you and Conrad have just been talking about where you have a, a diagnosis such as that young girl and you can approach it in that joined up way, it would seem very logical that they are treated within a pain service environment. But equally, some of the very complex mental health presentations, we don't have the resource to be able to see them because it would mean that we couldn't treat any of our other patients. We would have no time for that. So I suppose my question, and I'm maybe leading you into the answer here, which is not very good, is about which patients should we be keeping under the pain umbrella and which one should we be seeking for them to have their mental health interventions separate from a pain service? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a million dollar question, isn't it, about where do these patients sit? And I'm I'm going to try and answer your question, but I'm not sure that that's what I'm about to do. What I would love is if we could be having a more open dialogue with our mental health colleagues about the role of pain and about where pain sits. I think it's a sad truth that services tend to get, this isn't news to anybody, but services get organized by disability. And what can get lost in that is that thing that I was talking about earlier, which is that ability to formulate an individual and think about their needs and and what's brought them to the place where we find them. And I think there can be scope for doing more joint working with our mental health teams. But there are some patients who do require more of a team, who may require the services of family therapists or who may require a psychiatric review. Um, And that, unfortunately, we don't have capacity for. But I don't think it has to be them or us. And I wish we could move to a position where we can jointly do that piece of work where they can still access the pain management element that that we offer, but the complexity of their mental health can also be addressed by a mental health team. I'm not sure I answered your question at all, but I think, you know, I think what it brings up for me is that this divide doesn't work and it doesn't doesn't sit well with our message. We're constantly, constantly banging on about the mind and body, yet we split them off. And so should we as pain management services, should we not just see children with mild to moderate mental health issues, but should we be seeing children with severe mental health issues? Wouldn't that bring everything under one umbrella? That's difficult, isn't it? That's difficult to, to know. I mean, I was I was kind of wondering about this, kind of in the knowledge that I was going to be speaking with you two and thinking, what is the barrier there? And is it something about how our health service is set up that for each specialty, there is a generally a lead consultant. And do you end up, if you're trying to deal with severe mental health and chronic pain condition, do you end up with too many cooks um, if you bring everybody in under one roof? However, I have also seen, and, and Glyn, you've been involved in cases, you know, in my previous role on the, on the Mildred Creek unit, where actually the pain team have worked really well with the severe presentations that we would see from a mental health point of view there. It's hugely, you know, to be very pragmatic about it, it's hugely resource heavy to try to do that kind of thing. And I'm not sure you might have a better knowledge of this, but I'm not sure if there are any test cases for that where it's all done under one roof. 
I was going to say the short answer to that, I don't think is no, unless Conrad has a different opinion. I mean, uh, it is funny listening to you there because I absolutely see the logic of what you're saying, but I've been programmed in my managerial role screaming at me saying, no, of course we don't see the severe patients because of the, what I talked about before is, is just the resource. Pain management services just do not have the resource mm. to be able to take on. You take on one complex patient and that would tie up you know, one of your psychologist's time quite dramatically. And so to have an equitable resource, you know, equitable spread of resource across all your patients, you just cannot do that. But whether it's the right thing clinically, I totally agree with you. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I actually agree with you that you'd end up diluting your service too much to try to do that. But I wonder, Conrad, was your question more about should we have everybody that we need in one big room together trying to figure out these these patients? And that's where, you know, I came to the idea that will you just have too many cooks? Do we need to still prioritize what's the most important thing for this young person and this family right now? we'll do a bit of that, then we'll do a bit of this. Um, so we'll start with the pain work, then we'll do the whatever the mental health problem is or vice versa. The middle ground is to have much better communication between whoever's offering what. So to have much better communication between the mental health teams and the, the chronic pain teams in this case are generally pediatric teams. And, and to make it a bit more normal that, that we all discuss these cases and we don't silo them off so much. To be fair, I was just being a bit facetious and kind of throwing a little bomb at you just to stimulate discussion about it, because it is an issue. Where is the border between pain management and mental health treatment? And there's huge overlap, of course. A lot of treatment in mental health conditions is treatment of avoidance. And it's the same in pain management. And we're kind of using the same methods. We use the same strategies often in pain management as we do in the treatment of mental health conditions. And so the question does become, well, hold on, what, what is the difference? And who do we see and who do we not see? Practically, for me, it's not a problem in the sense that when, for example, we can't see children who have high risk issues because we're not a 24-hour service. So we can't see children who have high suicidal ideation, um, for example, or children with an eating disorder. Kind of, We wouldn't do physiotherapy with them, for example. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more, particularly about the avoidance piece and where fear comes into all of this and, and what a driver it is for so many, you know, for both mental health problems and for responses to chronic pain. But ultimately, so I guess this is what sometimes frustrates me is that the treatments don't differ massively. So it frustrates me when we've seen somebody in a chronic pain clinic, we know they, they would do well in a mental health setting, but you get a, a quick response that says, no, we don't do pain. So, but you do because you know, we treat it all in a very, very similar way. We just, we adapt all the time, but you adapt for every single person you meet anyway. Jane, you described to us very forthrightly and precisely about how complex this is and how we could be doing things an awful lot better. And I think we'll all be able to take that away. But the final thing, despite all of that, can we just ask what you enjoy about working with pain? That's an easy question to answer, I think. I would have to start by saying that the Great Ormond Street pain team is the only pain team that I've worked with. And I think there's a lot to be said about the team. 
And what I mean by that, it's not just about the individuals, even though they are all fantastic, but it's actually about, for me as a psychologist, where psychology is placed within that system. I am working with a whole host of other professionals who can really see the value in the work that the psychologist, not just me, obviously, that the psychologists bring. And I think the other thing that I enjoy, enjoy about it is how multidisciplinary it is. And it really is a reflection of the mind and the body. So as I was saying at the beginning, if I were to try and map out how my career progressed, I think it has followed a complex path. Pain is just a great way of being able to work in that way. So working with other professionals, working with other disciplines and working with families. There's a load of reasons why I enjoy it. Well, thank you, Jane. That was great. And I just say that you weren't contractually obliged to say the first part of that answer. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but anyway, thank you ever so much for your time and we'll see you. My pleasure. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Another really interesting conversation we've had there, Conrad, especially I think for someone like me who doesn't come from a psychological background like yourself, I thought that was a really good introduction or explanation for us about complex mental health that we might see in chronic pain and how we deal with it, maybe what we should be doing to try and deal with it better than we are doing at the moment. What did you think? What things came out for you? Yeah, definitely. I find it very, very fascinating. And it's nice to hear somebody who's got a lot of experience, both working with children and young people with very severe mental health issues, as well as pain. And that was very interesting. I have no doubt that pain management programs should, in fact, be able to treat and deal with mild to moderate mental health difficulties in our patients. They're often inseparable pain and mental health in our patients. And so if we're saying that we can't deal with the mental health side, we can't deal with the pain management side either because pain management is sometimes around emotional regulation. The only question for me is the extent to which we should integrate mental health treatment into our program. Given the barriers, all the barriers that we face in the United Kingdom in accessing mental health treatment, I'm almost inclined to say, just let's just do it all. Unless, of course, a child has very severe issues. What did you think? I'm not sure about that. I agree with you, but I suppose, as I said in the podcast interview itself, I've still got that hat on my head that says I'm the lead of a service. And I'm thinking not just about pain management programs, I'm thinking about the patients that we treat without a program. And whilst there is definitely a crossover and children with, as you say, sort of mild to moderate symptoms, it is hard to Distinguish that from the pain and treating both at the same time probably makes an awful lot of sense or treating them in, as Jane sort of alluded to, treating them in the order that they need to be treated in. But we just do not have the resource to take on complex mental health. And if the complex mental health is something that needs sorting out before pain can be sorted out, I'm afraid that probably does need to happen in a different environment. I mean, I, I suppose I'll bring you back to looping around in a big circle back to Alison Bliss's metaphor. Mm -hmm that she had about if the rest of the garden is on fire as well as the barbecue, there's not much point in putting the barbecue out without addressing the rest of the garden as well. Or it might be that you need to put out the rest of the garden before you can actually get at the barbecue. So I think it's a really tricky one. I mean, I, I get that there's an association between the two and I get that you are probably going to have to address both together. And if that can be done in a managed, coherent way within 
a pain management service or a pain management program, then yes, we are the right place to do that. And unfortunately, with the way mental health services are for children, it won't get done elsewhere. Mm. But I do think that if you've got really complex mental health, I think you're struggling in a pain clinic to deal with that. But what would be interesting to know from you is what sort of conditions do you think we shouldn't treat then? I guess when I said, let's do it all, I was expressing frustration with the fact that we often can't work with our mental health colleagues because their waiting lists are very, very long. So in the end, of course, we can't do it all. We're not a 24-hour service, so we can't deal with severe issues around, for example, suicidal ideation or self-harm. If children are extremely autistic and find group environments very difficult or new situations difficult, it might be difficult, although obviously we can deal with mild to to moderate levels of, of autism. Children with anorexia or ARFID are very, very difficult to treat because their calorie intake is often insufficient to be able to engage with physiotherapy. Our physiotherapists just wouldn't want to see them if they're not eating properly. And of course, extreme levels of anxiety and depression that prevent people from implementing the strategies that we teach them are very difficult. And another factor, of course, is people's motivation to engage with the program. And that's a a topic that we've talked about quite a bit, of course, over the last few episodes. Absolutely. And I think the underlying message, you know, I share your frustration, really, because what Jane was saying is that we all need to work better together in a more cohesive, joined up way. That's bound or logical. But you know, the current state of the health service doesn't really allow us to do that. And that's such a shame because that really is where we're failing Mm. the young people and their families. Yeah. And I hope it's different in different parts of the world, of course. And I hope that in the United Kingdom, we'll move to a different situation at some stage. So with that hope, Conrad, should we thank everybody for listening? Again, a really interesting episode. I found it a lot of fun. I hope everybody else did out there. And if you have any questions or comments to make, please email us on whatapainpodcast at gmail.com. See you soon. Bye.